Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and its present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Tamara Fernando from Cambridge University. Today, we'll be discussing animal trade histories in the Indian Ocean world, out with Palgrave as part of their Indian Ocean World series in 2020 co-edited by Gwyn Campbell, Martha Chaitlin, and Philip Gooding. This is the first collection of essays on trades in animal and animal products in the history of the Indian Ocean world. An international array of established and emerging scholars investigate the roles of equines, ungulates, subungulates, mollusks, and avians, and how they have shaped our understandings of commerce, human societies, and world systems. Focusing primarily on the period of 1500 to 1900, They explore how animals and their products shape the relationships between populations in the Indian Ocean world and Europeans arriving by maritime routes. By elucidating this fundamental yet underexplored aspect of encounters and exchanges, these interdisciplinary essays further our understanding of the region, environment, and material, political, and economic history of the world. Today, I'll be speaking with two of the editors, Professor Martha Chaitlin and Dr. Philip Gooding, Professor Chaitlin is an independent curator and historian. She was a curator of Asian history at the Milwaukee Public Museum from 2001 to 2005. As an independent curator, her projects include No Theater in the Woodblock Prints of Sukioka Koyogo, 1869 to 1927. She has authored several books, including Cultural Commerce and Dutch Commercial Culture, The Impact of European Material Culture on Japan, Ivory and the Aesthetics of Modernity in Meiji, Japan, Alfred Palgrave in 2014, and a co-edited volume, Asian Material Culture, University of Amsterdam, 2009, as well as numerous other books and academic articles. Dr. Gooding is a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center and a lecturer in in the History and Classical Studies Department at McGill. He's primarily interested in the connections between the East African Great Lakes and the wider Indian Ocean world in the 19th century. He's examining these connections through his ongoing monograph on the frontiers of the Indian Ocean world, a history of Lake Tanganyika, 1830 to 1890. He's also beginning a project on the environmental history of East Africa, circa 1780 to 1900. Welcome to you, Martha and Philip, to the new books in the Indian Ocean World series. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your rich volume today. I wonder if you can start us off by saying a few words about yourself and giving us some background on how this project came to be. Well, um, as if you look at the book, you'll notice that I'm an East Asianist and not an Indian Ocean specialist. But um, for me, it was sort of two connecting things that brought about the interest in animals. The first was when I was working on um, the book you mentioned, Dutch Commercial Culture, um, I found 
many, many birds listed in the inventories of gifts and requests for Japanese officials. And I'd never really found any mention of this in literature. So I started wondering what they were and why they were there. And then the other part of that is uh, a large project that I've been working on, on ivory in the early modern world, which inevitably would draw me to East Asia. So this specific book came about because um, um, Omri Basovich Frankel, who um, was also a postdoc at, or a, sorry, a graduate student at uh, McGill, put together a conference um, with money organized by Gwen Campbell. And um, they were kind enough to have me as the keynote speaker. And not everybody in the book was at the conference, but um, in the end, we decided it was a good enough conference that we should turn it into a book. Yeah, and I, I was actually one of those people not at the conference, but um, I was getting in touch with the Indian Ocean World Center, um, having moved to um, Montreal uh, in 2015. Uh, and um, I started off by submitting um, a chapter which had stemmed from uh, my PhD thesis, which I'd just finished. And I think like quite a lot of people who have just finished their PhD thesis, you want to continue with research along a similar theme, but also can't face looking at that thesis any longer. Um, and my PhD thesis focused to a great deal on the ivory trade in 19th century East Africa. Uh, and one of the way, one of, in this, in this um, the opportunity to edit or to co-edit this volume kind of was a, is a nice way to um, bridge a gap between my East Africanist ivory trade focus uh, and to take that into the Indian Ocean world uh, and into looking at animals and animal products more generally rather than just looking um, at the ivory trade. And having um, then uh, discussed with Martha, I think we um, quite coincidentally found that our research interests and expertise um, met somewhere in the middle. As Martha said, she started off um, studying mostly in Japan, but had recently moved to study also aspects of South Asia, myself, uh, studying mostly East Africa. But by looking at the ivory traders, of course, um, looking at um, commercial networks that stretched over the Western Indian Ocean world to places like Kutch uh, and Gujarat. So we had, a, I think we um, had a decent regional um, focus that could really link up different parts of the Indian Ocean world. Um, and we had intersecting um, thematic interests as well. Uh, and I think that lent itself to putting it together a volume like this. We're very happy that you came together to put the volume together. Um, so let's turn to the book and get right into the, the, the meat. You open the introduction with one of Aesop's fables, writing that to focus on animals is not so much a gap in the historiography, but a way to shape it that has frequently been bypassed. What do animals do to Indian Ocean studies? That's a hard question. Um, I yeah. So I just started out. Uh, I mean, we co-wrote the introduction, but um, the Aesop's thing was my contribution um, because I wanted to speak to the resonance that 
animal and human history have with each other. So in other words, we all live in one world and to some extent the divide between humanity and animals are artificial. So the personification that Aesop applied to animals sort of rep it's not that Sorry, I'm a little incoherent. Um, but it's not so much that that um, I think that animals and humans are the same. It's just that we all coexist. So, Philip, maybe you have a more. Uh... I, I I've got a couple of a couple of ideas here. Um, one of the things is I think in Indian Ocean studies, there's always been an awful lot written on things like spices as a category. Um, and I suppose, to a lesser degree, also metals as a category. But yet, animals seem to always get split up into different kind of things, particularly when it comes to animal products. Um, and I think there's a need to, like, let's, if we put all of these different things in conversation with each other, and it seems like these seem like a coherent cat category, let's see um, what happens. So it's kind of adding another category to, uh, like, a well-trodden um, path in commercial, um, commercial oh, history of Indian Ocean world. The reason for the spices and, and whatnot is because the focus is on the commercial aspects of trade. And clearly, even something like ivory is dwarfed by textiles and spices. So it depends on if you want to emphasize just the fact that money is moving around or, um, as I think many of the essays in the book do, emphasize the impacts of of these things moving around, then things like ivory and animals become much more important. Absolutely, the ma the massive uh, ecological change as well, um, as right, a result of, right. the, of these kind of, of these kind of traits specifically. Um, and there's there's another thing as well, which I think is quite important. The, the, I, I love, very much love the introduction to the podcast. Um, it invites us to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean. Um, one of the things that an animals do. Is or animal trades do is they actually invite us to go into inland areas, into terrestrial spaces as well. And I think if we think this kind of encourages Indian Ocean studies scholars to not just think about maritime connections, but also think about the connections between littoral regions and deep interiors as well, like the ivory trade, um, donkey trades, um, uh, and uh, horse trades, um, which all of which are elucidated in this in our volume. Um, these are all terrestrial animals, um, and therefore we need to think about the links between um, the regions and the environments that these kind of animals come from, uh, and the um, oceanic spaces of the Indian Ocean world as well. If I can keep you there for a second longer, because I, I think there's so much to unpack. Um, I wonder if you can say something about the title, which is Animal Trade Histories. So would this look different if we were to, say, do animal studies in the Indian Ocean world? Um, trade, is, as you've indicated, has been a sort of long-standing concern, a way to tie the region together, to delineate its bounds and to, to justify why, why it should be studied as a space. Um, is there anything we can say particularly about the, the really rich historiography of, of commerce and trade in the region, meeting animal studies. So I guess I'm supposed to answer that. Um, um, the, the title um, 
the, we actually had another title in mind, uh, which the publisher vetoed at the last minute. So this was sort of a last minute consultation over the phone where we found something we both didn't hate. Um, but, um, and the original title lives on in the introduction as uh, one of the one of the subject headings, um, but the question is: is um, applying and so? I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question again so I can? In in I guess one way to say it is what what does this what does using animals do to the vast scholarship on trade and commerce and merchants in the Indian Ocean? I think it ties it more into the the actual world. So like I said, a lot of economic history tends to focus just on the things that moved the most money. So um, it tends to be spices or textiles or gemstones, which, um, which didn't take up a lot of cargo space, but were high value, low transport cost products, right? But the fact is, is that those ships were big. They needed lots of things to fill them up. And before modern times when plastics and other materials were invented, everything that we used was either animal, mineral, or vegetable. So the interaction with animals is two levels, right? There's the things that the animals produce, the tusks, the leather, the feathers like I wrote about or or other things that come from the animal. But then as some of the essays show, there's um, like Rio Winters, there's the animals themselves and the animals themselves have meanings as well. So looking at animals is just a, a bigger, better, more expansive way to look at the Indian Ocean world. In terms of like looking at the, at the commerce as well, I think one of the focuses on spices is obviously driven because of it was there's a lot of European demand for spices, um, and although there was also European demand for animals and animal products, it was a lot it was a lot smaller. And one of the things we found in the period that we mostly focus that our contributors mostly focus on, which is around 1500 to 1900, is actually its demand within the Indian Ocean that. Um, shaping animal trades, and also that Europeans are facilitating this as well. Um, so this asks us, I think, to reorient our commercial histories of the Indian Ocean world in the early modern period to focus on Indian Ocean consumption, Indian Ocean um, demand, and Indian Ocean networks, and how Europeans didn't take over them um, but rather sought to integrate themselves and to direct themselves into them, um, at least during this period. Yeah, because, um, I mean, I think that's the trend of scholarship now anyway, is to uh, remove the colonial Europeans and focus on indigenous networks. But I think that one of the valuable things about this is that it shows how much they worked hand in hand that indigenous networks were definitely not supplanted by Europeans, but um, they sort of worked cohesively together. 
So thinking more specifically about this endeavor, I was very intrigued to note that particularly in some of the longer historical chronologies that some of the authors adapt, uh, adopt, rather, there are some non-traditional sources, which you mentioned also in the introduction. What types of methodologies might be innovative or new? So I'm thinking of the use of scientific data, um, you mentioned isotope analyses. I think um, William Gervais Clarence Smith's chapter has um, sort of DNA analyses of where donkeys break off or evolve into different subbreeds. Is there a role that different kinds of sources or methods play here when discussing animals? I think that there is um, an interdisciplinary aspect to working with animals. Um, I think a lot of the work in animal studies has come from hardcore humanities field. And frankly, none of the people that ended up in the volume were from this, the more humanities end, but more the historian end. But the emphasis on inter, in an interdisciplinary aspect still remains. I know that um, I have a one on elephants that's impressed now that I also used um, articles by paleontologists and, and other things to better understand what was going on. So I guess my, I don't know if it's more as innovative as much as interdisciplinary and being willing to look outside the normal sort methodologies that historians use because that doesn't answer all the questions that you need answered. Yeah, certainly from my perspective as well. Um, so my, my, my chapter focuses on um, 19th century East Africa, um, which East Africans will know the sources, uh, the traditional sources, are very, very thin for. We rely mostly on the sources of European, in big quotation marks, explorers uh, and missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are obviously problematic sources. Um, they're com- filled with racialized assumptions um, and, com- and ignorance, quite frankly. Um, and therefore, there's, in my opinion, there's always a massive need to integrate um, alternative sources, um, including scientific sources. Um, I've just had a quick flick through my book to make see if it actually I can't flick through the book to see if it actually made the final cut, but it didn't. But the one kind of in addition to that was worth mentioning here, just as an illustration. Um, and this is something that um, N. Thomas Hackinson uh, Hackinson has been working on and published on as well. Um, is about the ecological imprint of the ivory trade um, and. That is the fact that elephants, when they're numerous in a location, um, spend have a shape the environment to which they live significantly. Um, mm-hmm. They knock down trees. They take down high level, high lo- high grass, um, which means when ivory trades have expanded, and this is most notable in the nineteenth century, it has a massive impact on the environment, leading to um, leading to the regrowth of um, bush, um, and therefore this also has com- um, this has consequences for um, things like vectors for diseases, um, and. This is kind of all gathered from 20th century data about when poaching has been has riven um, parts of um, Eastern Africa. But yeah, you can extrapolate this to the 19th century. And I think that is absolutely essential because simply 
our sources don't tell us about this, but yet we can extrapolate from this more recent data to tell us, uh, to, to uh, make us think about it more clearly. If I could actually then turn to your own chapters, since you both, as you mentioned, Philip, have chapters in the volume. Um, Professor Chaiklin, I'm wondering, in your chapter on Japan, you write, historians can use visual sources as evidence, um, writing in one instance, peacock feathers challenge the isolation of Japan. So if you can maybe tell our readers a little bit about the kinds of sources you bring together to make your argument and what oh. it does also to use visual sources. Well, um, I think that many historians ignore visual sources or they sometimes use them quite naively as if they were photographs, but visual sources are just as important as written sources, but they need to be questioned in the same way. So I, um, I kind of, since many of the authors didn't chose not to supply any illustrations, I sort of sucked up all the air that was left and put as many illustrations as I could stick into my chapter because I think they do make the point that, um, and I want to emphasize that I had a lot more to choose from and mostly I chose the ones that I could get for free, um, but they make the point that it, it isn't some abstract idea that was floating around among, among a bunch of scholars that peacocks and their feathers were in society, used by society. I mean, I started the chapter just talking about feathers, and um, I was quite proud to, for the first time ever, have a dinosaur fossil is, illustrate one of my <laughs> chapters. But um, the visual sources, well, I think that's just the way that I work. I don't really have a predefined methodology. I just have questions and then I look for answers. And if visual sources help provide me with those answers, then I use them. And if I could stay with that for a moment longer, is there something about scholars of material and visual culture where um, it's a field that's actually been much more open to confronting um, the animal origins of their products head on, whether that's a bezoar or an ivory cabinet. Is there a way in which scholars of material and visual culture have long been attuned to the animal in the way that perhaps scholars coming at this from other disciplines have not? That's, that's possible because we, um, we look at how things are made. And if you look at how things are made, you need to look at where the materials come from, why those materials were selected, and what is the advantage of that particular material over another one. So um, a lot of my work has been about challenging this idea that Japan was isolated from the whole world in the early modern period. Um, I did another chapter in a book on luxuries, um, about tortoiseshell, and I make kind of the same point as here in that tortoiseshell just became such a common material, people don't even think of it as imported. But in fact, there were no um, there were no tortoiseshell producing sea turtle. It's actually a sea turtle in Japan at the time. So back to your question, I think that. I don't know. I mean, I hesitate to say something as grand as attuned, but if you're looking at 
material culture, you look at the material and that would naturally lead you to animals. And Philip, from a very different perspective, I'm really struck that your own chapter, as well as lots of the other chapters, um, speak to much broader concerns. So you write in your chapter, analyses of these human historical processes, and here you're referring to the sort of, you know, richly networked trade in ivory, um, speaks more to political power in 19th century East Africa than it does to prevalent themes in animal studies or history, such as animal agency, intentionality, or resistance. I'm struck by this sort of comparison here, maybe with Stephen Sorrell's chapter on the horse and the exercise of state power in the Southern Red Sea region. Um, what do animal studies offer to these broader debates on power, empire, um, and commerce? Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, one, I, I can refer to my chapter, mostly refer to aspects of the introduction to answer it. Um, I refer, or we refer in the introduction to the recent kind of Anthropocene versus Capitalocene debate, um, and which is the, and obviously, I think everyone will be aware, but the Anthropocene as the period in which humans have um, indelibly shaped global climate. Um, and Capitalocene scholars have challenged this by saying, hold on, it's not humans as a... Um, species who have influenced global climate, but a specific set of humans. It's not even across the human race, rather, um, actually, it's um, primarily, their argument, um, European capitalists. Um, and as a result of the expansion of capitalism, which they date to the start of, uh, or the end of the 15th century, um, they argue that it indelibly sh reshaped our relationship with um, the or, or, or capitalists in um, relationship with the environment. Um, most of the work in this context is looking at things like um, mining uh, and um, also on um, use and agricultural change, um, but also on changes to labor regimes and exploitation of labor, specifically and primarily in, uh, from an early stage, uh, the expansion of um, slave trading and slavery, particularly in the Atlantic world. Animals um, do enter into this discussion, um, but not too much. Um, and I think this, this um, I suppose, um, my chapter uh, and those of others show that actually the exploitation of animals as part of these processes was absolutely um, integral. Um, and in fact, um, just if you want to speak to my chapter specifically, um, this is about the expansion of the global ivory trade which um, precipitated the entry of the world economy um, into the interior of East Africa, as far away um, as present-day Kisangani uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, it, these regions entered or became integrated into the world economy um, for the first time. And while you can look at this in terms of broad economic um, aspects to actually really get to the nitty-gritty of it, you need to look at the, this is about the exploitation. Um, one way of looking at it is very much about the exploitation um, of animals. Um, and this went in hand, hand in hand with, I suppose, the expansion of capitalism. And I, 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 think, I, think, I think that's what we're trying to get at there. One thing that's clear, at least from these last two responses, is that well, not all animals are the same, Mathe or peacocks, compared to Philip's elephants. Um, 
Could you say something maybe on the really fascinating organization of the book? So the distinction between wild and domestic, oceanic or marine compared to terrestrial, um, mollusken compared to quadrupedal. <laughs> Um, we did put thought into that, but uh, I don't know if there's a big, long explanation for it. It's just um, we were looking at different ways to approach grouping the various chapters, and um, it seemed like the scientific groupings would also speak to human response. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it also it also um, shapes the way we think about the Indian Ocean world as well. By looking at first, we looked most firstly at I suppose maritime space, which I think is, as I said earlier, is like the most well known aspect of Indian Ocean studies and Indian Ocean world studies. Um, but then by thinking about um, ungulates as well and other land animals, you obviously go into the um, inland areas of Indian Ocean studies. Um, too. So it's kind of bridging that gap between this maritime space and terrestrial space in Indian Ocean studies. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, um, I suppose there's just a, a different way of trading um, and it, the, the, just, the, just the trading domestic animals, I think, happens along different terms to trading the products of wild animals, for example, you can broadly de- might you might define the trade of donkeys of live donkeys over terrestrial spaces between um, small groups over local local areas in the Indian Ocean world, um, which um, William Gervais Clarence Smith talks about a great deal, um, and you might think about that. In relation, it's a for, as some form of exploitation, but I think the exploitation is some is significantly different when we're talking about the killing of elephants for their ivory, the killing of wild elephants. Um, and there's a, I think there's a distinct, uh, there's distinctions between um, levels of violence and degrees of exploitation uh, in the human animal relationship when we divide them um, in these terms. Another question I'd love to hear your thoughts on are um, animals and the experience of empire. I'm sort of struck by the fact that across the chapters we encounter a number of different empires, the Dutch, the VOC in Ria Winter's chapter, the East India Company in the Gulf of Manar in um, in two of the chapters, or, you know, the Marina Empire on the island of Madagascar. And I'm thinking also of sort of recent trends in, in, in some volumes to construe animals as anti-imperial, as offering some sort of resistance to empire. Um, and these are works that very much tend to focus on particular moments in specific empires, which this volume isn't bounded by. Um, what does it do to have this kind of broad comparative approach to, to multiple empires across space and time? Well, um, I think that the, uh, although there's nothing wrong is with construing animals as empire, that's reinserting human perspectives onto animals which is sort of the opposite of the humanities approach about giving voice to animals uh, and avoiding some kind of speciesism. But, and I think that by having this sort of non-bounded approach without taking some, um, um, a theme like empire or colonialism or something, it gives us an opportunity to look at 
history on its own terms. In other words, that having multiple viewpoints helps us sort of reach a greater truth. Yeah, I would, agree. I, I would agree with that. Um, I don't. I don't think I have anything to add. To be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can phrase it slightly differently, maybe. What what are the rupture points in the Indian Ocean? It it really seems like this this isn't a story that's as straightforward as the Colombian Exchange or um, stories of human animal microbial encounter in the Atlantic or the Pacific world. Um, is fifteen oh five and the introduction of the Portuguese a rupture point? Is it the nineteenth century and industrial capitalism? Are are there sort of big rupture points, which, granted, we tend to draw from um, Western imperial chronologies, but what are the turning points then for animals in the Indian Ocean world? Can I answer this one, Martha? Sure. Okay. Um, I, 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 I absolutely agree with your statement here that it doesn't appear to be this rupture point as you have with the Colombian exchange. Um, and I am reluctant to think in terms of turning points. Um, one of the things I think that we do by covering this period from 1500 to 1900, although we do go a little, it was a couple of chapters do go beyond this point a little bit, um, is that um, this is kind of more of a, it's, it's, it's a long durée perspective, I suppose, in the tradition of Bordel's conception. And of course, Bordel has been central to many conceptions of the Indian Ocean world. Um, and the change is very gradual. Um, one of the things that we have to really bear in mind here is that animals um, and biological exchanges have been have been occurring in the Indian Ocean world since ancient times, since before um, the turn into the Common Era. I suppose if you want to think about what the role of the Portuguese arrival in the uh, at the end of the fifteenth um, century is, maybe it adds a new layer, but it's a very very thin layer, um, at least initially. Um, I suppose if there is a major change, um, it may come, I think, closer to 1900. Um, certainly in the Western Indian Ocean, and maybe Martha, as, a, as someone who's more familiar with the Eastern Indian Ocean, might, might bring this uh, a little bit earlier. Um, but this is something that the chapter by Stephen Sells um, brings us to, uh, brings our attention to. Um, in the idea of the use of um, horses as being absolutely integral to the functioning of, or the assertion of political power uh, and military and and to um, armies in the Southern Red Sea region up to 1900. Then we have the introduction of um, firearms, and then thereafter, um, broadly speaking, um, horses become less important to um, the uh, to militaries. Also, you can draw. I can draw attention to my chapter as well here, where um, I'd suggest that the human-animal relationships uh, had been had been in Eastern Africa had been um, largely constant um, up to around nineteen around uh, the mid nineteenth century, when we have the massive expansion of the global ivory trade. So, if we're talking about um, a massive if we're talking about a turning point um, in the um, human-animal relationships and in animal trades in the Indian Ocean world, I think we need to bring it to much later with the rise of industrial capitalism. Um, and, this, and 
also, but then also accounting for the time it take, took for these structures which originate in Europe to arrive in the Indian Ocean world. And therefore, I think we look at the second half of the 19th century as, a, as, as, as perhaps a, a turning point. Um, and this, of course, contrasts with perspectives um, put forward by, I suppose, a long time ago now by Emmanuel Wallerstein uh, and more recently by Jason W. Moore on the capitalist scene, which kind of sees 1500 at this major turning point in um, human environment and therefore human in animal relationships um, the world over. I think that's really inspiring in terms of how we might derive alternative chronologies, perhaps um, from the Indian Ocean space. And staying with this, in, in the introduction, you write modern approaches to animal studies derive largely from philosophical approaches that evolved from Enlightenment thinkers, spread through the work of Darwin and accelerated um, in the environmental consciousness and animal rights activism of the last half century. Having said this, a lot of the essays in the volume, as you as you just mentioned, gesture towards indigenous understandings of animals and animal products, whether that's ivory in your chapter, Philip, or um, turtle shell or peacock feathers. Are there ways of thinking about animal studies from the Indian Ocean region out, as opposed to, say, applying a set of theoretical ideas that we inherit from elsewhere? Oh... Uh... <laughs> Um, do you have a good answer for that? Otherwise, I'll... I, I, I'll suggest that if there is one, I don't think there would be one universal one. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think this, this is one of those cases where maybe perhaps the Indian Ocean doesn't seem as a unified space as in so those histories of commerce um, actually suggest that it could be as this general space. I think looking at... Um, yeah, Indian Ocean understandings of animals and their roles in cultures um, would vary depending, um, d- does vary depending on region. There might be not be an indig- a, a way of making it an Indian Ocean focused study that looks at it, looks at the Indian Ocean, that is able to draw con- con- draw connections across the Indian Ocean in the same way. Um, the yeah, one, that's a, yeah. Oh, go ahead, sorry. There, there is one exception to this, um, I think, and that would be in the trade the trades of or the exchanges of um, live animals, um, exotic medic, uh, the, the, the large mega exotic megafauna, large medic megafauna, um, as um, diplomatic gifts. Um, this appears to be quite a pervasive feature of um, Indian Ocean connections before the arrival of Europeans and thereafter as well. Um, the exchange of things like of animals um, such as um, elephants and giraffes um, and then being taken to um, leaders in different parts of the Indian Ocean as symbols of tribute, um, as as a means to gain favour, uh, favourable um, commercial relationships uh, or even to assert some kind of um, cultural superiority. These kind of exchange of live um, animals um, as diplomatic gifts seem to be one way that you could possibly think about um, connections in the, across the Indian Ocean uh, in kind of one framework. Yeah, and I would add that the Indian Ocean, um, I think as you brought up earlier, is a much less cohesive space than, you know, say the Atlantic exchange or between Japan and China or something. So mm-hmm. the um, 
the the East and West Indian Ocean have characteristics that are sometimes similar, but sometimes completely different. But the example that Philip brought up of uh, of diplomatic gifts of animals that seems to have been fairly universal and predates European encounters in the region. Certainly, you know, we have elephants going far, you know, elephants going to Europe far before the, um, the maritime age. So that the things that resonate in the Indian Ocean as a whole, I think, resonate across humanity. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point about the connection between with, with animals as diplomatic gifts, um, bef- even before the, the maritime age. Um, yeah. Europeans were, re- were cognizant of um, live animal gifts as live animals as diplomatic gifts in as a practice in the Indian Ocean before they arrived there by maritime routes. Um, and as a result, I think I think this contrary to them to tapping into this as something that they would continue to do thereafter um, once they had made maritime connections, and, and certainly the Portuguese, Dutch, and um, English, um, all their companies um, use diplomatic use live animals as diplomatic gifts um, a, around the Indian Ocean to gain favorable um, favorable. Uh, commercial relations, uh, and also um, as gifts, and this is as Rear Winters in our volume um, states, as gifts back to um, the back to Europe as well, to gain favour with their funders in Europe too. Um, I suppose if there's a change around 1500 here, I think before 1500, this use of live animals as um, diplomatic gifts, Europe is right on the edge of it. It's something that's going on around the Indian Ocean that has been going on for centuries at this stage, and it sometimes reaches Europe just to a, a little amount. When the Europeans arrive, they become more central to this process. But this process, um, I believe, actually originates in the Indian Ocean itself. And is there a role here also for technological change, changing the way we relate to animals, whether those are more advanced firearms used for hunting or trawlers at sea which are capable of picking up more chank shells um is is there a role for technology in, in the story of human animal relations oh absolutely absolutely uh, i think that um technology has in part made it easier to use animals but at the same time uh it's replaced them so a lot of the uses that ivory was put to has been replaced with plastics. So mm. I think if we're looking at both human and animal history, I don't see how we could leave technology out of it. I mean, how did they catch the animals? How did they get them to reproduce when they wanted them to reproduce? How did technology is a fundamental way that, that human beings interact with the world? Absolutely, but then, but then also the other thing when we think about technology, sometimes you, you mentioned firearms and trawlers. Um, in terms of firearms, they're not always immediately transformative. One of the things that I think is important to stress here is that although firearms circulated uh, East Africa in vast, vast quantities in the second half of the nineteenth century, they did not dominate um, elephant hunting. 
and they were certainly used. But older methods, for example, pitfalls, poison arrows, um, for example, were not made obsolete. Um, and I think this speaks to, again, the uneven imprint um, of European and European technologies on um, the Indian Ocean world over time is very much a slower process. Um, and it also speaks to um, the unreliability of some technologies like firearms. A lot of the firearms circulating East Africa in the second half of the 19th century were often more dangerous for the people firing the guns uh, than they were for those that the guns were aimed at. Um, and as a result, um, yeah, we have the ongoing usage of, on the face of it, might seem less efficient techno- uh, methods, but actually um, they, they continue to prevail. Well, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's degrees and levels to all of that, right? Because firearms really make a difference in elephant hunting, essentially after World War II, because of advances in the type of firearms. And then the other thing was, of course, chainsaws. So it was a lot easier to just uh, take the take the tusks out. But firearms did make a difference earlier in other parts of Africa. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, you know, the, the invention of something doesn't necessarily mean that it diffuses immediately or rapidly. And... I think sometimes we lose that perspective because information travels so fast now. And if you look in pre-modern times, you know, for a new technology to spread and be accepted, it could take 50, 100 years. It was not unusual. Like some of my earlier work in glass in Japan was specifically about that because, um, well, glass is an in- interesting thing to look at from a technological perspective because it really has to be taught. You can't you can't look at a glass and think, oh, I'll try and make that myself. You have to have the chemical knowledge to do it. And because it's a bit finicky, there's a lot of precise chemical knowledge that is involved. So when I was looking at the diffusion of glass technology in Japan, it was it did take so although it's not for certain, my hypotheses was that glass was introduced glass blowing was introduced about the um 1670s or so but it doesn't really reach edo for another 100 and like another 100 years so technology moved a lot slower because information moved a lot slower I know we're getting to the end of our conversation and I don't want to keep you both over time. Um, so I wonder if actually we might reflect a little bit on one thing I thought the book does really well, which is showing us that although there may be sort of real material embodied living and dying animals at the heart of these encounters, um, these are interactions then that then grow and travel across the world, whether that's through ideas around political sovereignty and rule, Philip, that you were talking about, or through art and fashion and um, tastes, in as 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 with the the example of the peacocks, um, Professor Chakman, I wonder if you might say a little bit about, say, the pe- the Whistler peacock room, or um, ways that interactions that might begin with real animals then migrate or grow into into uh, more amorphous cultural forces. 
Uh, I'm sorry, I missed half that question. Could you rephrase that? I... Absolutely. Um, the question is, well, we're talking partly about live animals and events that really have to do right. with live animals. But then we're also talking about how real animals migrate into other themes like art and taste right. and fashion and design. So I wonder if you might use the Whistler Peacock Room or any of the beautiful examples that you have in your chapter to tell us how um, these ideas then move across the world. Um, well, I thought that that was the the interesting thing about the the peacock feathers that it was something that was not Japanese that became that came to represent it. So if you look at the Whistler Peacock Room, which um, I would have loved to include a number of other photographs because there's like peacock feather patterns along the walls. And it, it really and truly is not just the one picture of the peacock that I showed. <clears throat> so I think that also has to do with human beings and how they relate to the world. It is we include these things. Um, so like I talked about in the chapter about how feathers represent certain things to human beings because they're sort of totemic. And I think that we, even now, even if we are only using say a leopard print fabric, which is only cotton and has no, you know, no animals were sacrificed in the reproduction of the leopard print, the sort of totemic properties of having this powerful animal on your body continue even today. So we take these things from the animals because we, not only because they're beautiful in and of themselves, but because it gives us a feeling that we take on these things and can incorporate them in, into ourselves. Not a good mm -hmm. enough answer. <laughs> a beautiful answer. A beautiful answer, I, Philip. I, I wonder if you if you had anything to add on on ways that these these essays are about animals themselves, but also about themes that are more than more than about the animals. Um, I don't think I do. I I, I I don't think I have anything particularly more to add. I, I think because I think actually Martha's chapter is the one that speaks best to this theme and one of the things i just find absolutely found absolutely fascinating when reading martha's um chapter was about the idea was as as she, as she said that um peacocks of course don't originate in japan but yet over time they became absorbed by J japanese society and then in as um, people for, from others, particularly Europeans, viewing Japan saw it as somehow Japanese, as as um, peacocks being somehow symbolic of Japanese. I don't know how exclusive this can this is specifically to animals, but I think this is one way you can really see where the origins of something is. Peacocks uh, in the southern Indian, in the northern Indian Ocean world, sorry, uh, and then and then uh, it, and then um, cultural associations with it being completely somewhere somewhere different. Um, and yeah, I think Martha's chapter speaks to this, to this the best in the volume. In an attempt to close what I'm sure is a conversation that could go on for a long time, both of you have worked on other topics in the Indian Ocean world, whether it's art, slavery, Islam, maritime connectivity, trade. What does the future of Indian Ocean studies look like to both of you? Well, this is difficult for me because 
Um, as you probably noticed from looking over my work, I don't really care about boundaries or definitions. I just, like I said, I have questions and then I look for answers. Um, and I have not extensively looked at Indian, the Indian Ocean world as a, a field because my, my geographic base is somewhere else. But I do think that um, even though Indian Ocean studies have struggled a little bit because of the size and the not the way that it's difficult to define, unlike you know Atlantic studies, for example, I think that it is coming along and developing into a more cohesive structural geographic area for study. But I'm sure Philip has a much better answer. <laughs> uh, I have, I think I have two ideas on the future of Indian Ocean Studies, and they're definitely linked. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in, this is absolutely influenced by the third editor of this volume, um, Gwyn Campbell, um, is the importance of human environment interaction. Um, since the foundation of Indian Ocean World Studies, so I'm talking about um, works by, for example, K.N. Chowdhury and Janet Abu Lugard. Um, the monsoon has been absolutely central to the two conceptions of Indian Ocean and linking different parts of the Indian Ocean together. In the old historiography, in this early historiography, there has been a tendency to see the monsoon as this annual event, this annual back and forth rhythm of monsoon winds going northwest and southeast. Um, sorry, the opposite direction, um, northeast and southwest. Um, so, but in actual fact, this is not the case in actual, and while the winds might go back and forth, the strength of the winds and what they carry with them changes on a year on year basis as modulated by several global climatic teleconnections, for example, El Nino, um, volcanism, Indian Ocean dipole, um, which means that, and this might seem quite, um, that, that basically monsoon not every monsoon season is created equal. Um, and this particularly applies in terms of rainfall. Um, and, of course, as is well known, much of the Indian Ocean, uh, the, the regions bordering the Indian Ocean have, have very seasonal rainfall, um, and that sometimes this rain fails. Um, one of the things that really comes out from this is that um, fluctuations in rainfall in one Indian Ocean region often means fluctuations in rainfall in another Indian Ocean region. And this is because it's all modulated by the um, Indian Ocean monsoon system. Um, so instead of seeing the monsoon as an annual back and forth rhythm, it's very much more a changing rhythm uh, over time. Sometimes it's just one season that goes, one season of um, erratic rainfall, I suppose. Um, or sometimes it goes on over, over decades or even a century. Um, and so we can sort of look at long term uh, and long term uh, and relatively short term change um, in the Indian Ocean as a um, cohesive space um, through looking at changes and um, climatic changes related to the Indian Ocean monsoon system. Um, you know then, that in East Asia, they also use monsoon to define East Asia. So exactly. You might so, have <laughs> so, so exactly. So this, this is this, this is why East Asia is absolutely critical to the Indian Ocean world as well. And this is why um, I obviously I absolutely include East Asia in the Indian Ocean world, even though it might be 
Pacific facing. Um, in addition, this, and this kind of brings me on, this brings on to the second aspect of the Indian Ocean world, which I think, or, or Indian Ocean studies, where I see it going in the future, um, is in recognizing the, the importance of the Indian Ocean monsoon to the um, Indian Ocean world. Um, we'll cease, or, or not cease, but we'll, we'll cease being so occupied with um, coastal areas. Um, the areas in port towns and maritime trade, but also look at the inland areas as well. Um, the areas uh, which go as far as, um, as uh, Martha has just mentioned, as East, is East Asia, northern China, uh, also go as far as um, Egypt, um, which of course is um, on the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, um, because the... Um, because the Egypt's agricultural regimes are absolutely reliant on monsoon rainfall falling in Ethiopian highlands, which modulates the um, Nile floods. Um, so I think this, I therefore kind of see the bounds of the Indian Ocean studies in terms of spatial bounds um, expanding, um, going into um, terrestrial and inland regions rather than just looking, rather than focusing, as most studies do, on um, port towns and little spaces. So isn't that world history? To, to a large degree, yes. And this makes, this makes, this is a, this is, it, it's an Indian, it's an Indian Ocean world history is, is, is the point <laughs> to make here. Um, so moving, moving the center. Yes. So the, and hence the Indian Ocean world center where I'm a postdoctoral fellow. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I would love to end the podcast there, but given tradition, I do have to ask as a final thought, um, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing all your thoughts with our listeners. Um, can you tell us in closing what you're working on now or any future projects? I'm working on two big projects. Um, one is about, it's also an animal product. It's Western shoes in modernizing Japan in the 19th century. I'll probably go up to about World War One. Um, it's, I thought it would be interesting and it's actually turned really interesting because there are so many elements of modernization going on at the same time, um, including, for example, outcast leather workers working with samurai origin entrepreneurs, um, interesting labor issues where uh, Japanese shoemakers would go to the West Coast and um, they learned some stuff about trade labor unions and came back and impacted trade labor unions in Japan. It's actually turned out even more interesting than I thought. And then the other one is the one that sort of led me to the Indian Ocean in the first place, which was which is ivory, and I've been working on a sort of world history of ivory in the early modern world, and I actually became interested in this because for the same reasons that why did Japan become such a big consumer of ivory when it isn't indigenous? So those are the two main things that I'm working on right now. And yeah, I'm working on two things as well. One of them is I'm finishing up my manuscript uh, for my first monograph, which will be entitled, well, I hope to, until a publisher gets hold of it and changes it, of course, um, uh, on the frontiers of the Indian Ocean world. 
uh, a history of Lake Tanganyika circa 1830 to 1890. Of course, it kind of taps into some of the themes that I've just mentioned by conceiving Lake Tanganyika, which at its closest point is about a thousand kilometers from the Indian Ocean, as part of the Indian Ocean world, I am absolutely bringing the Indian Ocean or the, the great the, the deep interior inland regions into conversation with Indian Ocean studies. Um, and I'm kind of conceiving this, the, the um, uh, Lake Tanganyika as an oceanic space, a place of cultural interaction um, between people of the Indian Ocean littoral, um, Swahili, uh, Mali populations and African populations uh, in East Africa who came into contact with cultural forms uh, and religions, um, systems of bondage that which would have been circulated, which had been uh, in the Indian Ocean uh, littoral space for such a long time, but only arrived in Lake Tanganyika in the period under review. Uh, for the first time in circa 1830 to 1890. Um, and then my other project uh, is um, a project on droughts, floods, and global climatic anomalies um, in the Indian Ocean world. I'm trying to, I'm in the process of pulling together. Uh, this, this stems from a conference that was due to be held at the Indian Ocean World Centre um, last May, but unfortunately had to be cancelled due to um, COVID restrictions. Um, but this will again look at global climatic teleconnections or global climatic anomalies such as those associated with um, uh, with El Nino, with Indian Ocean dipoles, uh, with volcanism, with typhoons, um, and how these have contributed to droughts and floods. Uh, in different points and in different regions of the Indian Ocean world, trying to draw connections uh, connections across different parts of the Indian Ocean uh, at the same time. Uh, and then also look at the impact um, that such droughts and floods have, have had have had on um, Indian Ocean history. Thank you both. And we're looking forward to having both of you back very soon in that case for, for any of the four projects, whichever, whichever comes to fruition soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode in which we explored animal trade histories in the Indian Ocean world, co-edited by Martha Chaiklin, Philip Gooding, and Gwyn Campbell, published in 2020 with the Palgrave series in Indian Ocean World Studies. This is your host, Tamara Fernando. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.